0: I'm Julie Kissick and welcome to a special collaboration marking International Women's Day. I'm a senior lecturer at the University of South Wales and for the next two hours, postgraduate students from our visual journalism course will join with me to share stories about the lives of some exceptional women. Some have overcome life trauma, some have built businesses, And some have learned to express themselves and their creativity in unique ways. We hope that you'll find each of them inspiring in some way. The six students from USW who contributed to the programme have also chosen some of their favourite songs by female artists. And they'll be introducing themselves and their song choices between now and four o'clock. I get to make the first choice, though, and there's only one song to start a programme like this with. That's Alicia Keys and Girl is on Fire. She's
1: just a girl and she's on fire Hotter than a fantasy Lonely like a highway But she knows she can fly away
0: guest is Christina Jones from Nelson in Kefili, who was 30 weeks pregnant when she contracted COVID last February. Eight days after her diagnosis, she was hospitalised and then ventilated, and her baby girl had to be delivered nine weeks early. This is her story. With the baby laying on my lungs, there was, there was
2: no way of inflating them. So the decision was made to ventilate me, to give my body a rest, my best chance of survival, basically. They did a cesarean on the 2nd of March. Angel was born in a poor condition and she was also ventilated. Angel was then transferred to the Grange Hospital, where she was there for around five days, I believe. She had different levels of oxygen herself and made a tremendous recovery and was Back in Prince Charles while I was still asleep. I then woke up on the 8th of March and the the hospital basically said, You've had a baby. I didn't remember being pregnant. And all they gave me was a picture because obviously I was so poorly and being with a contagious virus, I couldn't physically see the baby either. So it was just a photograph to say, basically, this is yours.
0: It sounds like a really trite question to ask, but. How did you feel when you found that out?
2: I didn't believe it at first, I have to say. Obviously now I remember being pregnant before, and I guess if they could have placed a baby in my arms maybe it would have triggered my memory, but that wasn't an option. When I woke up, they tested me, and I was still positive. So they wouldn't allow me to see Angel at this time. So I think it was another five or six days. That before I actually physically got to see Angel. She was two weeks old when I actually met her. So it was very hard. When I realised she was mine, I'm upstairs in intensive care and she's downstairs in intensive care and we couldn't see each other.
0: Had your husband, Nick, managed to see her before you?
2: He did, yes. So Nick seen her on day five because she was born to a positive mother. She had to have two negative COVID tests before anybody could see her. So Basically, I was in Prince Charles on a ventilator. Angel was in the Grange Hospital on a ventilator, and Nick and the family couldn't see either of us. So that was an extremely difficult time for the family as well, which obviously I was oblivious to. When she'd had two negative tests, Nick was able to see Angel then. And they did say, because of the circumstances of what I'd been through, Nick could have come to see me. Because as you know, in COVID, nobody was having visitors at the time. Mm -hmm. But if he'd He couldn't have then seen Angel for 14 days due to the transmission of the virus. So I said, look, that baby's got to have one parent. So the decision was made that he would visit Angel and I would just, you know, cope with it, which is what we did.
0: Obviously, coping with something like that in those circumstances is something that none of us would ever have been able to imagine because none of us had ever been in, in those circumstances. But in a normal situation, it would have been incredibly hard to manage that. What was it like when you saw her for the first time?
2: Extremely emotional. Um, I was very weak, so obviously I was taken down to in, the baby and uh, intensive care in a wheelchair because I had to physically learn to walk again. It wasn't a case of going to the incubator to pick it up. I was very weak myself. so it, And I was obviously very emotional because it was the, it was the first time I'd seen Nick as well, my husband, because he was there visiting Angel. So I, I hadn't seen Nick for, I hadn't seen anybody for quite some time. So it was obviously a wonderful experience to be seeing Angel for the first time. But it was also a joyous occasion because I was seeing Nick as well, which we've, ne- we've never been apart and up until that point, even though the hospital said Angel was okay and she was making progress until I physically seen her myself, I didn't believe it. So it was a kind of um a relief as well to know that she's real, she's well, and she's gonna be okay because because I honestly didn't believe that she was going to be.
0: What was going through your mind in the time between actually coming round and being able to comprehend all that had happened to you and then actually physically being able to see her?
2: I have to say the hospital were amazing in terms of I couldn't see her, but they did everything in their power to make me feel part of it. I mean, it was all new and trying circumstances for everybody, including the NHS, but they brought me a baby grow or a little vest that she'd worn. Um, which was the hospital's, because obviously she'd been born premature and all the shops were closed uh, because of COVID. So Nick had nothing in that size for her. So it was the hospital's baby grows. So they came and brought one of those so I could smell her. They brought me an iPad so I could watch her live, um, like FaceTime. In the first days when I knew that she was mine and I was in intensive care, every time the phone went, I honestly believe they would ring in to say, that she passed away because like I said until I physically seen her I didn't believe that she was going to survive
0: but it sounds as though you in the circumstances you had a lot of support from people who didn't know you
2: absolutely it was they became like family because they were the people that you were with on a daily basis and obviously when you're poorly and you have your family by your bedside it makes things easier so to have nobody those people are everything. They literally are. They're everything.
0: I read in the story that Wales Online did on you that your husband was given uh, a very stark choice to make prior to Angel being born. It was, yes. Have you spoken about that?
2: Yes. Yeah, so obviously, a year later now, it's a lot different. We didn't. He didn't know Angel but for for Nick when they said asked him to choose between my life or the baby is he said we I mean, have to think about it he said i didn't know angel we have other children so even though it may sound selfish to others he said but we we needed you and angel wasn't a personality a baby or she was a baby but she wasn't he didn't know her if that makes sense um obviously a year later now that's very different but at that split second his instant um Answer was to save me, which the surgeon came and told me this um while I was still in intensive care. And to be quite honest, I I it broke me because to think that he made that decision, you obviously know that you love each other, but that was that was huge.
0: I'm sure it was. And and it must have been absolutely awful decision for him to even have to think about.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, I went through it physically. The other side, what they he went through, because he obviously had me extremely unwell, the baby unwell in different hospitals, couldn't see either of us, and then he had it, Penny, my eleven-year-old at home, who was also COVID positive, so we couldn't even cuddle her. So from many different perspectives, it was hard.
0: And as a family. Often people talk about having real trauma and clearly you had trauma times 100, didn't you? As a family, how has it impacted on you?
2: Like I said, you you know your family loves you, but it certainly does make you realise just how much. I've got a stepson also, Nicky, he's 16 and we're extremely close, always have been. But just to see how upset um, he was, Obviously, Honey, who lives at home with us, to see, uh, to see her possibly be without her mum, yeah, extremely hard. But we've, as a family, we've spoken about it lots, which the counsellor said, which was a good thing to do. We've we've made some jokes about it because Honey has seen me whilst on the ventilator and she said, Mummy, you look so scary because she had a, she wanted a FaceTime with me. So they did a FaceTime and, and the, the nurses said, look, she's heavily sedated, you're not going to get a response. And when they did get a bit FaceTime with me, um, as soon as I heard Nick's and Honey's voice, my eyes opened. In the grand scheme of things, is nothing, because normally your family would be by your bedside. But because of COVID, that couldn't be. So that was huge. And, and at that point, Nick knew that I was going to come home. He said, I knew at that point you were in there.
0: Fantastic. What's the no. last year been like for you as a, as a woman and as a mum?
2: I look back at the year now, and I think it's the quickest year of my life. I think, I do wonder how I got through it, but I guess with the, the network I have around me, my inner determination, I guess having Angel being non-independent and needing me was the best medicine. Don't get me wrong, i got, like I said, i got Nicky and Honey who need me, also Nick, but the baby who can't do anything for herself needed me, which certainly was the best meds and I had to get better for her. But yeah, you certainly find out who's there for you and who's not. And I've got a lovely network around me who's been there for me every step. And I couldn't have done it without them. You, you know, it's been extremely hard but, and challenging, but I am proud that we've come out the other side.
0: And what do you think has changed in terms of maybe your attitude to life as a result of this?
2: I massively look at things differently, things that, minor things that would bother me before. Don't entertain them these days. You certainly appreciate things more, your family. smaller things, milestones, you know, watching Angel, being able to sit up, celebrating the children's next birthdays, Christmas. It's not about what's under the tree, it's who's around it. It just totally changes your outlook on life for the better.
3: From the heart of the Heath, serving the University Hospital of Wales, St David's Hospital, and the Cardiff Royal Infirmary, too.
4: We are Radio Glamorgan.
5: Hello, I'm Jazz, a visual journalism student at University of South Wales. I've grown up in Cardiff as a proud Welsh woman and have an eclectic variety of interests, from skateboarding to scuba diving. I love finding out not just how, but why. The song I've chosen is called Only You by Unity and featuring Cara Elise. It's a beautiful piece about friendship and the ancient connections to our Welsh heritage. The women behind it have inspired not only my personal and professional life, but the lives of so many other women in the music and art industry. If you haven't heard of Unity, you've definitely seen her empowering street murals all around Cardiff. So here is Only You by Unity featuring Cara
6: Elise.
7: sunshine on a rainy day changed the wind in the beginning we were singing a song of humanity and lessons of humility sipping tears from each other's shoulders and the giants of the universe were sent here to hold us Ready to be one, we were winners in the living and the women with the givers and the singers of the finishing line. I cry. Tears for believers and leaders and the healers and the bringers of life.
5: I'm Jazz and I'm here with Cara Elise, North Whalian musician and one-fifth of the all-female band Baby Queens. So you play guitar and you sing vocals with your band Baby Queens. Although you've been off the radar, you're now back.
8: We are. It's very exciting to say that we are now back. We have had over the last sort of three years where we may have seemed inactive, we've been kind of working behind the scenes in the studio recording demos and very excited to announce that we now have a full studio album ready to sort of be released, which is our second studio album. Yeah, it's really exciting. Would you say that
5: the process of writing this album is sort of why it took so long or part of the reason why it took so long?
8: Yeah, I mean, there's been quite a few different reasons why it's taken us so long, but we we always take quite a while, us guys, because we're not just the kind of people who go in the studio and record an album in a week. We tend to go back and forth, break things down, come back with new ideas, add, take away. We're quite experimental in our sound and our creative process, so yeah.
5: What's the process been like for you guys recording music again, especially throughout COVID, where it seems like everything else just stopped?
8: It was crazy with COVID. We were booked the first summer of COVID for sort of Bumtown, a lot of the big festivals, and those were obviously all canceled. So we kind of took to recording and doing stuff behind the scenes. A good friend of ours, Stagger, RIP, unfortunately he passed away. Just over a year ago now, but during the time of COVID, we were lucky enough to record and work with him privately to record all the demos for this album. So now going into the studio to sort of finalise the tunes, it's been very, very emotional, but it feels kind of beautiful in the fact that we can honour the work we did with him and get those records polished up and get them out into the world and just yeah kind of tribute a good friend like that
5: yeah stagger was very loved in the cardiff music scene that's for sure
8: he really was he was a worldwide famous dubstep dj so it was just just really a very sad thing for everybody in the music scene worldwide but obviously especially in cardiff because he was a bit of a cardiff king and (laughs) just an all-around generally brilliant human being. And I
5: understand the road to being able to record this second al- album hasn't been easy for you in, in more ways than others. So. You were also diagnosed with Crohn's disease, and for our audience, what are some of the symptoms of Crohn's?
8: Yeah, Crohn's is a very kind of interesting, yet strange, yet debilitating disease. I mean, it's kind of like an umbrella term, because with Crohn's you may get... I mean, people will always relate it to sort of having stomach problems, being sick, this kind of thing. But in actual fact, I'm anemic um i get fibromyalgia peripheral neuropathy joint pain muscle pain breathing difficulties chronic fatigue i mean the list goes on and on Mm. everybody diagnosed with Crohn's can have different symptoms it's not it's not particularly easy or a particularly nice thing to deal with but through sort of health fasting and lots of all kinds of different things i've kind of managed to uh get myself to a level where i would be maybe called in remission which is fantastic oh that's really good news um So how long have you been suffering with these symptoms? So yeah, it's crazy. I, from a teenager really, and when I was in the hospital, they kind of obviously did big historical looks into my sort of health. And they said that when I was diagnosed as a teenager with like chronic anemia, that was very common at the time that people who had Crohn's, it wasn't as known at the time. So people would be diagnosed with really bad anemia. So It was kind of crazy to find out I'd actually been suffering with Crohn's for 20 years and never had a diagnosis, so, yeah. Wow. Did you ever experience sort of any of the negative symptoms whilst playing and touring with your band? I did, yeah. I mean, um, obviously nerves. Crohn's is a stress-related disease. I'd get so nervous and then my stomach would be in agony. Even down to if we were playing a sort of festival where it's cold, my hands, I'd get really arthritic and the other girls would, like, we have a little... Kind of ritual where they all kind of like rub and warm my hands up so I can play the guitar oh. <laughs> yeah so even when they didn't
5: know they were still supporting in yeah. even the littlest ways yeah yeah and how did you actually end up being diagnosed what was the process like for you
8: yeah so it was kind of crazy it was about a year before I went to hospital I was rushed into hospital a couple of times they kind of thought I might have some kind of virus or some kind of hard-hitting yeah like a hard-hitting virus or something they couldn't sort of diagnose me at the time and I had A year since my initial hospital visits and of sort of deteriorating and flaring up and flaring down without a proper diagnosis. It was a year later that I was taken to hospital and I was there for a month. Uh, When I got there, they basically didn't actually think I would survive the night because I had lost so much weight from sort of vomiting and just being seriously unwell. They actually said I had a seven centimetre mass in my gut, which they wanted to do a major surgery to remove and leave me with a stoma bag. But during that month in hospital, my sister had contacted an American doctor who basically said I could avoid having the stoma bag if I was to fast with fruits and herbs. I guess in Western medicine, we would call it bowel rest, which is quite common for people with Crohn's. Yeah, I did about a year of fasting wow. and managed to um, get myself probably in better state of health than I've actually ever been. Yeah. <laughs> it was really, really intense, but I started the fasting while we were waiting for the operations and within two weeks, the mass in my gut had reduced from seven centimetres to five centimetres and I started thinking, okay, maybe there is something to this and give it a go. Yeah, maybe this is go. Yeah, yeah. Well, here we are now and you didn't have the <laughs> yeah. surgery.
5: So, at what point... Are you at now with your health?
8: I'm still up and down. Sometimes I'll get just a random load of symptoms, say like nerve pain or stabbing. Some days I might have sort of arthritis, like joints my bones that kind of thing and then sometimes I just get sick and tired of eating so healthily and have a binge (laughs) or a stressful situation could arise but the flares it's much easier to cope with my flares now because I know what to do and how to cope with them and how to deal with them so they're getting less and less as time goes on but yeah it's, it's, it's a different world now because it was so terrifying at first I didn't understand it I didn't know what it was now that I kind of do know what to do and I do understand it it's really not as frightening and that I, I feel like I have some control, basically, and I feel like I know what to do to kind of make myself better. So yeah. education has really been key for you
9: in understanding Ed, and managing, yeah. managing a- the Crohn's. Absolutely.
8: Kind of learning about it all and um, maybe a bit deeper, speaking to other people with Crohn's or similar autoimmune diseases, that has really helped. and Yeah.
5: Nice. So since everything is going pretty well at the moment, can you tell us where we might be able to see baby queens in yes. the
8: future? Yes. So, our first festival that we're playing this year will be Focus Wales, which is an industry festival in North Wales and Wrexham. We're playing on the stage with a lot of our friends from Cardiff.
0: You're listening to a Radio Glamorgan University of South Wales collaboration to mark International Women's Day.
3: You're listening to your award-winning station, Radio Glamorgan, here for you. All day, every day.
0: You're listening to a Radio Glamorgan University of South Wales collaboration to mark International Women's Day. Hi, I'm Laura,
10: I'm 22 and I'm originally from Bath. Um, I'm currently studying a Master's in Visual Journalism in Cardiff. My chosen song for International Women's Day is The Man by Taylor Swift. It's such an empowering song and really uplifting. And I love how Taylor Swift plays with the idea of reimagining what her life and career would have looked like if she was a man. For example, she's been put down a lot by the media and in this song she just reimagines what it would be like and how she'd be written about if she was a man. Um, yeah, this song's really great, really uplifting and it's really helped me get through some low points where I felt put down by someone else.
4: I would be complex, I would be cool They'd say I played the field before I found someone to commit to And that would be okay for me to do Every conquest I had made Would make me more of a boss to you I'd be a fearless leader I'd be an alpha type When everyone believes yeah. What's that like? I'm so sick of running as fast as I can Wondering if I'd get there quicker if I was a man And I'm so sick of them coming at me again Cause if I was a man and I'd be the man. I'd be the man. I'd be the man. They say I hustled, put in the work. They wouldn't shake their heads and question how much of this I deserve. What I was wearing, if I was rude, could I be separated from my good ideas and power moves? and they would toast to me or let the players play I'd be just like Leo in Saint-Tropez I'm so sick of running as fast as I can Wondering if I'd get there quick or if I was a man And I'm so sick of them coming at me again Cause if I was a man And getting bitches and models, and it's all good if you're bad, and it's okay if, if you're mad. If I was out flashing my dollars, I'd be a bitch, not a bother They paint me out to be bad, so it's okay that I'm mad. I'm so sick of running as fast as I can, wondering if I'd get there quicker if I was a man. You know that and I'm so sick of them coming out.
10: According to the NHS, 95% of people aged 11 to 30 are affected by acne to some extent, and this is most common in females aged 14 to 17. Perhaps the lesser spoken knock-on effect of acne is the toll it can take on the mental health of the person living with the condition. Many people feel it will never get better. Today we're going to be speaking to Lucy Isaacs, who is keen to share her acne story and spread awareness of the condition, specifically for International Women's Day. Tell us a bit about your acne journey and when it became a noticeable issue for you.
6: To be honest with you, acne is something that like it was inevitable that me and my sister were going to suffer with because my mum had bad acne. My nan had bad acne. So it was sort of like a time clock when we were going to sort of develop it. Both me and my sister, I'm not going to speak on behalf of her, but we both developed it in primary school. Not bad, but when you're that young, it is quite obvious that you have spots and no one else does um and obviously when you're that age you don't wear makeup you don't want to cover it up um so it was just sort of just a very much an obvious thing but it definitely got a lot worse when I went to secondary school and like at one stage I'd I would joke about it because that was sort of the only way that I sort of knew how to cope with it I guess was just a joke and I'd be like I'm literally a walk you know a walking talking dot to dot like it did very much get to the stage where I wouldn't leave the house without any makeup on you know I was getting it so much earlier trying to cover up my skin and I was back and forth to the doctors on different antibiotics and different creams and they suggest the pill and when you know when you're sort of 14 15 it's sort of like is that the right answer at that age probably not so it was just very much a an issue that nothing was working for me and I didn't want to keep having to wear makeup and I ended up buying expensive makeup to try and cover it. Like it just, it just didn't really work. So I would definitely say teenager was when it was just like the worst it's ever been, I guess.
10: Okay, so in terms of arachutane, which we know you've been on, um, the medicine itself is known to cause really extreme symptoms in some people, such as depression, dry and cracked skin, as well as bone and muscle aches. So as someone who's been on it do you think that more needs to be done to raise awareness for the extremity of this medicine before people take the plunge of it Yes
6: I think that from my from my experience it was very much a case of I went to I was finally sent to the dermatologist and that was the first thing that the dermatologist suggested to me and it was sort of a case of you decide I'll give you 10 minutes have a think about it and then I can give it to you and you could start it today type of thing and Because my sister had already been on it, I sort of knew what to expect with the side effects. There's definitely not enough awareness about it. And the dermatologists themselves, they much very much focused on the fact that you can't get pregnant on it. At 15, that wasn't something that I was very much concerned about, but they didn't focus on the mental health or the skin effects or do so much damage to your body, your liver, Internally, it can really mess you up. So there is not enough knowledge, and there should definitely be more awareness of it because they're so easy to just hand it over to you because of the success rate of it. And don't get me wrong, it really worked, and I am glad I went on it now. But at the time, you know, especially when you're a teenager, you're at a very vulnerable age where you're going through exams, you're going through a lot of stress, a lot of change to yourself, your body, your family, your friendship. I was really lucky. I only experienced the dry lips, like to the next level. I did get quite a few nosebleeds as well, just due to dry skin in my nose, pretty much. But also, like, dry hair, which, looking back, I only had to wash my hair once a week, just to keep it clean. Like, it never, ever, ever went greasy. It was crazy, but no, I didn't, not as far as I'm aware any mental effects at all. I think you need to be okay in yourself before you go on it, because I, my mental health wasn't bad back then at all, really like back then, you know, it was just stress from exams, wasn't it? But I was only on it for about eight months. And then it just worked. And then I got COVID and now my skin's bad.
10: So obviously this episode is for International Women's Day. So we're specifically focusing on the effects of acne on females. Do you think that females are more inclined to feel the pressure of, say, curing their acne to meet beauty standards?
6: For sure. I think that a lot of Social media influencers, celebrities, you know, anyone you look up to, even your friends, for example. And it's not not in a mean way, but, you know, you look at your friends and they don't have bad skin. Some of them don't have bad skin. And you're like, "Ugh, I wish I could have that. But acne is so normal. Hormonal acne, you know, stress, acne, anything, even after you drink, anything can bring on spots. Bad diet, whatever. Good diet can bring on spots. There's a lot of celebrities, a lot of influencers, you know, you don't see them have bad skin and it's something we all look up to influencers as celebrities subconsciously. When we see that they don't really have bad skin, it's sort of a case of what can we do to fix that, you know. But yeah, there is a lot of pressure, but at the same time, there is a lot of campaigns at the moment where, you know, people are showing real and fake or edited and non-edited or, you know, angles, what they look like normally, what they look like on a good angle, so... People are starting to see that acne is normal. There is a lot of pressure, but I think people are becoming more open to it. But I think personally, it comes down to the fact of how you feel in your skin about it. You know, everyone can look up to people and think, oh, well, they don't have spots. So, or they have spots, so I shouldn't worry about it. But at the same time, it is more of like a self-conscious thing.
10: As someone who's gone through acne myself I feel like the idea is constantly pushed on me that you need to cure your acne but do you agree with that or do you feel like society needs to change the way it's viewed and perhaps learn to be more accepting of it?
6: Society definitely needs to change the view on it you know acne isn't necessarily a bad thing it's something that you can't help and of course there is cures and that's fantastic if you want to cure it then it I think it does always come down to who you are as a person and if you want to live with it then that's fine but if you want to cure it and if that's going to benefit you then of course then do so but society in general I think definitely needs to realize that acne is not a bad thing it's just something that everyone deals with at some stage in their life even if you just get one spot or you get a hundred spots you know it's very personal and it can affect people in different ways so it's just being open to it and I see a lot of memes on, like, Twitter and Facebook. And there was one that I remember seeing when I was really young. They're these, like, biscuits. And they're all, they've are all they got, like, little, like, bumps in them just from, like, how they're made. And they're covered in, like, a cream. I saw this meme and it was, like, girls with acne covering it up with foundation. And, I, and that just always stuck with me. And I was just sort of like, how dare you? If we, you know, if we want to cover it up with foundation and we think it looks good, then... Don't make a meme out of it. And it got so many retweets. I remember it was on Facebook. That's where I saw it. That always stuck with me. And it's not something to make fun of. Society definitely needs to change their view on it because it's just something we can't help.
10: No, I look back at some pictures with my acne where I've covered it with makeup. And I'm like, oh, that does not look good. But at the time, that was how I coped.
6: Exactly. That's the thing. And now, like, if I put foundation and concealer over a spot that I've got and you can still sort of see it, it's just like... (sighs) It's what it is, isn't
10: it? As much as it's still an issue, just realise people don't care because you look at someone else and you don't think, oh, they've got a spot. You just think, well, I probably would notice it, but I'd be sympathetic. I wouldn't be judgmental. Me too. What advice would you give to any females listening to this program who are going through acne or even perhaps struggling with loving the skin they're in in any way?
6: There is so many options out there. If you want to change it, you can go and see the doctor a million times. He can give you a million different things. If that makes you feel better. If you want to change it, then change it. But at the same time, learn to live with it, learn to embrace it. It's your face, it's your body. If that means you're stuck with acne for life, then so be it. You know, there's nothing you can do unless you want to try and change it. But things don't work for everyone. You know, Rakuten's got, I don't know if it's like a 95% success rate. It's like 90-something, I swear. It doesn't work for everyone just learn to love yourself me right now my skin's not dreadful but in my eyes it is just because i was on reacting so i went from nothing to like spots on my chin and i'm just sort of at the stage where i'm just like whatever now my one piece of advice would just be just learn to love yourself just learn to be open to the different options if that's the route you want to take Or if it's not, because you don't need to take any options, acne is very, very, very normal.
3: Broadcasting from the John Wills Studio at the University Hospital of Wales in Cardiff. We are Radio Glamorgan.
0: Coming up, we'll hear from very different women with very different stories, all inspiring in their own way.
11: My name's Kate Rossini and I'm from Cardiff studying visual journalism. I came from a fashion background and wanted to blend journalism and fashion together and that's why I decided to choose the course. I picked the song Just Fine by Mary J. Blige because it's perfect to listen to when you want to feel empowered, powerful, and if you just feel like being a confident woman for the day.
1: You know I love music. And every time I hear something hot, it makes me want to move. It makes me want to have fun. But it's something about this joint right here. This joint right here, it makes me want to let it go. Can't let this thing hold up.
3: From the John Wills Studio at the University Hospital of Wales in Cardiff. We are Radio Glamorgan. I'm
11: Kate Rossini, and I'm part of University of South Wales Takeover for Radio Glamorgan. And I'm joined with Carrie Smith for International Women's Day. Do you mind just explaining a bit about your background for us today? Yeah,
12: so I'm a series producer working in the television industry in Wales, but kind of making content for Welsh audiences and UK audiences and kind of international audiences as well. I won a BAFTA Cymru Award a couple of years ago for a film uh, series that I directed. I'm currently about to series produce a show for BBC Three. um, And I was in the BBC for 18 years, quite a a long chunk of my uh, life and career. But now I'm freelance and have been for the last couple of years.
11: Have you always known what kind of career path you want to go down? Or is it something that's changed throughout the years?
12: Yeah, I think I always knew that I wanted to work in the media. I was one of the few people who actually does work in the media that went and did a film and television degree. I did want to be a children's TV presenter initially. And then once I started working behind the camera, I was like, yeah, no, I don't want that level of scrutiny. I realise all the creativity is kind of behind the camera. And I love my job, you know, still after all this time, I love my job. I just
11: feel really fortunate to come to work every day and do the job that I do. It seems very fast paced, but is that something that keeps you motivated? I think
12: it's just no two days are the same. I've made documentaries where I'm sat in the back of a police car going like 90 miles per hour on roads so that you ordinarily wouldn't be able to drive that kind of speed at. I've been in kind of surgical theatres. I've been there at the bedside of people's sort of last moments. I've filmed births, um, I've found vets and various sort of animal surgeries. And then I've kind of filmed fun things like traveling around Wales with Michael Ball and, you know, lots of um, behind the scenes drama stuff for a little bit. So that's kind of where Netflix and HBO thing comes in for now. So I did a lot of that kind of stuff. So I think it's more, it's just storytelling, but the premise can be different, the channel can be different, the audience can be different. So that's the fun of it, really.
11: How do you stay inspired and motivated to keep cool, calm and collected when filming quite heavy shows?
12: I've been following the work of the characters. So it's for me, it's like I'm just documenting their work and actually it's their work that's stressful. It's not mine. You know, as long as I'm doing my job properly and capturing what they're doing, they're the ones who are actually on the front line and they're the ones actually having to, you know, deliver a baby when things are going wrong in a labour. Mm-hmm. I always kind of lead with trust and collaboration and very much we collaborate with the people that you work with mainly though in terms of my own stress it's having really good solid people around me either working on my team or like my execs or my kind of producers or Just a home, you know, and just kind of friendship. And I had a brilliant female boss who's still a really good friend of mine. And whenever things got stressful, she always used to say, they're just flickering moments on the screen that'll end up in the archives. And I think it's that. It's like just remembering that actually we're not the surgeons. It's not life or death for us. It's just telly. And in some ways, of course, I take the job really seriously, but it is really good to remember that.
11: How do you stay inspired then? Like, do you look at the people around you for inspiration? Yeah, it's mainly stuff I watch. And like most people
12: who work in Probably Factual, um, I watch a lot of dramas. So, yeah, I gain inspiration from everything around me, really, from the same boss. She said to me one day, and she was like, what do you do? And I was like, oh, nothing really. I put all my calls out. I think all the press offices are closed and I don't think anyone's going to come back to me. And she was like, well, you're not going to get any good ideas out there, are you? And I was like, that's true. And she was like, walk around a supermarket, go to an art gallery. So I think it's about, again, your inspiration from everywhere. And being interested, actually, in people, wherever they are. That's kind of how you find stories and find what's interesting the stories are everywhere and they've already been told a million times so it's just like finding a new way of telling them
11: you gave birth to two premature twin girls 13 now and that is something that can be quite challenging on its own because I know with premature births there is always millions of unanswered questions that go through your mind during that time how were you able to balance the stress of work and going through something like that
12: I was lucky to be in the BBC and I had been in the BBC. And so I was really supported. So Betsy was £1.6 when she was born and Scarlett was £2.4. They were tiny, like and they kind of also say when they're twins to like take a week off that again, which is crazy. No, they were really poorly. My maternity leave kicked in the minute they were born. So even though I spent like that first three months of their life with them just in hospital, like not able to really bond with them the way that you would, you know, a newborn, you know, they're still needing kind of care. They're not in my house every single night they're in a hospital and traveling back and forth. But I know the big corporations, I think including the BBC, have changed that now and your maternity leave doesn't start until their due date until like the get home hospital and when I came back to work but I actually kind of had PTSD after having the girls because it wasn't really until when they were eight nine months old which really they were six months old if that makes sense well then that what had happened to us kind of caught up with me really but by then I was about to come back to work so my maternity leave was over and I kind of had like a bit of a a bit of a breakdown really And that was that was almost like all I needed in terms of I just needed the full maternity leave. It was the same boss that I've mentioned a couple of times. I worked with her for 10 years. So she's kind of had like a huge impact on my career. Um, And actually, I learned so many great ways to be kind of a female boss from her because it's all about who you work with and the support that's there.
11: I know that you lost your mum to cancer.
12: Was it like three years ago? She was really like really young to die. She's 59. So like 19. I think she was pregnant when she was 19 and 20 by the time she had me. Um, so we were like best mates, really. I like, could we kind of grew up and it was we were properly like, you might not have ever watched it, but um, you know, Patty and Adina are absolutely fabulous.
11: I love that um, show. <laughs>
12: Yeah, so basically I was Safi and my mum would get in from going out clubbing and I'd be like, okay, should I make you breakfast? It was, you know, I'd be off to school and making her breakfast. She was sort of (laughs) reliving her youth while I was like actually a teenager. But we were always really close, always, always got on. And when I had the girls, mum was living in Spain, but she would always come over for chunks of time or she'd take the girls over to Spain. And it was so uh, amazing to to share all of that with her, like my children with her and see her. Yeah. She had breast cancer and it kind of travelled. It's quite an aggressive form and it kind of travelled very far before she even was diagnosed. Um, we kind of knew straight away that um, she wasn't going to make it, which was horrendous. Because, you know, mm-hmm. most of the time you kind of hope there's a cure. She came to live back with us because it was we, I just couldn't cope with like being that far from her. And vice versa, she just wanted to be with us. So yeah she was she was amazing and she, she was really proud of me. I got an opportunity to go to Tokyo to film behind the scenes on a drama that was a BBC Netflix drama. Um, and she knew from a little girl I'd always wanted to go to Japan and she was like and it, 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 do you know what it's actually only a couple of weeks before she died in the end We didn't know she was that unwell. when she did die it was actually really sudden. I was like well I won't go and she was like oh my god you're absolutely going and she was so like proud it's been so hard like living without her really because she was my biggest cheerleader like
11: I could do anything she'd be proud but do you still like find her inspirations she's clearly a big inspiration to you in your work do you still feel those inspirations like in surrounding you in everyday life? I think she's just in me. She always kind of
12: was. We always had a really kind of uh, special relationship. I don't think, unless you were me or her, anyone would ever really know it. Even when she got unwell towards the end, she knew that I knew and I knew that she knew, but we never really had that conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, I think she's just in me, really. But she really enjoyed life as well. Mm-hmm. So she kind of worked hard, played hard kind of thing. And, you know, thank God she did because actually she only had 59 years. And, you know, I can't look back and think, oh, she wasted any time. She literally didn't and I'm the same but I'm now like every day's really short you've got to kind of do stuff and don't get me wrong I'm not happy every single day
11: especially kind of without her at your younger self if you could speak to her now what is the one piece of advice you would give
12: I think, and it's something, it's the last words a mum said to me actually, and they're tattooed on my on my wrist, but it's um, be brave. It's like, be brave. I think, you know, life will throw a load of obstacles in your way. You know, I grew up in a council estate in Swansea, um, blind and mice, um, you know, kind of loved kind of growing up there, but it was a tough kind of place to grow up. And I think I was brave when I was younger. And I think maybe at some point I then kind of lost it a little bit. You know, you go into the world of the media and it's lots of people who've been to Cambridge or Oxford. And whenever I think, oh, Oh God, I can't do this. It could be, it could be anything, it could be something to do with exercise, it could be something to do with parenting, it could be absolutely, you know, a life, a personal life decision. I look down on my wrist and I see the word, the last words the mum said to me that were kind of coherent. of reminds me that I can do things.
0: Coming up in the second hour of the programme to mark International Women's Day here on Radio Glamorgan, the visual journalism students from the University of South Wales speak to a Welsh social media influencer with over 100,000 followers on Instagram.
3: From the heart of the Heath, serving the University Hospital of Wales, St David's Hospital and the Cardiff Royal Infirmary too.
0: We are Radio Glamorgan. Thanks for your company here on Radio Glamorgan on International Women's Day, where six female postgraduate students from the University of South Wales are joining me, Judy Kissick, to celebrate the achievements and the lives of some remarkable Welsh women and businesses. And entrepreneurship is the theme for the first half of this hour, when we meet a woman who bought a cactus and was inspired by its resilience. So much so, she bought many more and turned her passion for them into a business. And we'll meet another woman who's founded a company making eco-friendly sanitary products. And we'll have music from Sophie ellis Baxter and Shaka Khan.
13: Hi there, my name is Danny Graham and I'm a student currently studying visual journalism at the University of South Wales. I've always had a passion for writing, stories and people and this course has given me the opportunity to combine all three and further myself as an individual as well as my education. I'm from Cardiff originally and I've been lucky enough to grow up around a host of fierce, strong and wonderful individuals and my goal in life has always been to tell the stories of others who may not be heard otherwise. The song that I've chosen is Get Over You by Sophie Ellis-Baxter. I chose this song because I grew up listening to her, I've admired and looked up to her as a fellow feminist, and her music has definitely given me strength when I've needed it. This specific song resonated with me when I went through a previous relationship, and I think it's a reminder of the strength and the resilience that women maintain. your way With me today, owner and creator of Blassus Succulent Emporium in Canton. Thank you so much for joining me today, Run. It's lovely
14: to have you here. Oh, thank you, Danny. No, it's lush. Thank you for asking me to come along. Where did the
13: idea come from and when did you start Blassus?
14: Well, Blassis started four years ago at a friend of mine. She was at the Boneyard, she had a unit and she was an artist, and I asked her if it was possible when they were having their Christmas fair if I could come along and sell some plants and see how it went and it went really well and got busier and busier until eventually I got my own unit at the boneyard and I opened up my little shop and started from there basically. What made you fall in love with plants in the first place? My mother was always collecting plants and I remember me and my younger sister being really fascinated because she um, purchased this huge terrarium and um we didn't know how to look after. We, didn't, we never seen plants like it. They had like things like phytonia and type of nerve plants and stuff, and they have all these colors. And I remember sitting by this bottle and being, wow, this is amazing, because it literally is like a little world inside a bottle. And my mother had an allotment. So I was always surrounded by nature. And I remember especially a memory when my older sister took me to a plant fair with my younger sister, and I'd never seen anything like it before. It was down the bay, and I must have—I couldn't have been more than eight years old, and we'd gone into this place. And they were just ginormous cactuses. I didn't even know these plants existed. And I think I bought my like, proper first plant for myself there, and it was a cactus. It was like a little barrel cactus. But I remember I had it and I lost it. And I must have been about, oh, you know, two months later after buying it, I found it had fallen down behind the sofa. And that plant looked exactly the same as the day I bought it. And I was just hooked then. I just couldn't get over like its resilience and it's, its ability to survive. And I had it for years after that. So yeah, I think that's where the, the idea and the obsession started.
13: Were there things that you had to learn that you weren't prepared for when starting your business?
14: From the business point of view, yeah, definitely plants. I mean, gosh, I've got over 400 vintage plant books and those to me are like magazines. So it's just like I've always been obsessed with like the images and information about plants. But when it came to the business side of things, it was all the idea of having to set up all the insurances and figuring out like all the paperwork and stuff, like all that kind of stuff I've struggled with. And then outsourcing it and trying to find other people who can help you. Because I think the reality of any business is that we're not an island. You can't do these things by yourself. And if you are having problems, I think you are just better off finding someone who's apt to that and paying them to do it. And you just do what you can do. You do do what you do the best. But I'm very fortunate. I've got a very good accountant and a good team of people behind me who keep me on track. So, yeah, from that point of view, those things were always really hard. So where would you say you get your energy from? Oh gosh, the plants! I photosynthesize no. <laughs> I think it's just it's passion, isn't it? If you're really lucky, you know, is that you know I always get it wrong, but it's that idea, you know, if you love what you do, you don't work a day in your life. And I spent many many years concerned that I was doing the wrong thing, that I didn't know which way I was supposed to go. And I I, I know it sounds really silly, but I always knew that I, I could if I, if I if I if I knew what I needed to do, and I had something to focus on, that I know I could go. I could take it as Big as I wanted to, but it was hard, you know. When you're going through school and you're going through college and you're trying out different things, and you're like, "Well, where's this going to lead?" and and you get the anxiety and you you know and it gets you down because you can't find your road. And then you know, but it's this idea that you just have to keep saying to yourself, you know, it'll it's going to happen. If this is what you want, it's going to happen. So just stick with it. Keep working hard. Keep learning all of this stuff, and something, an opportunity will come. And when it does, you'll know. And you just go hard. A lot of people wouldn't have had
13: the courage to be able to do this during the conditions that we've suffered the last couple of years. Where did you find that courage to do this and sustain a business through a global
14: pandemic? I, you know, I started the business before COVID. And I think just because of the very nature of the the shop and the location, the boneyard because it's inside a container, because it's in a huge yard, and there was parking. It, it was almost like an outlet for people during the pandemic to have an opportunity to drive somewhere where there weren't going to be lots of crowds, where we could be outside, and they still had this opportunity to do something normal, like buy something. And they weren't just buying something; they were buying something for their own well-being because they were stuck at home. But it was an opportunity to kind of like support people and people supported me it was it was incredible it was an incredible time in terms of you know how people could band together and try and make the most of what was a really really peculiar time in everyone's life but I you know I was very lucky I could set up a table outside people could come I could still interact with people the very nature of the business and how set up was almost perfect for that kind of scenario
13: who's been your inspiration through all of this my older sister
14: She's, you think I've got energy. She's, you know, she's three degrees MA, PhD, Dr. Rosanna Duncan. She's a dynamo. She does, you know, she wants it, she gets it. And she's a beautiful person and she's always encouraged me. And even in my lowest points where I just thought things were impossible, she always believed in me and she's always supported me. So I think for me, even as a little girl, you know, my big sister, you know, she was like my mother. She's been like my biggest support. Don't get me wrong, all my family have been. But it was this kind of like this idea that no matter what happens in life, if you want something and you work hard, you put your head down and you just, you know, you do it and you keep going, well, things grow. That's what happened. And it was kind of like, I think she probably is my hero in that sense. Who do you hope to inspire in the future? I guess everybody. I just want everybody to be able to feel this, this idea that, to you know, to have your heart full of possibilities, to know that there's positive things. Just come to my shop, stand inside it, and you will feel like an energy shift. And it's true, you know, like now I've put myself in a position where I have a job where I can't wait to get I I can't wait to go and speak to people. I can't wait to order more products and sell the products and promote the products because I love what I do. And that's that's the ultimate, isn't it? Is that you if you love what you do, then I could work 24 hours a day. If I could, it would be to inspire people to know that that's inside them. It's not easy and it's hard work and there's lots of crying and and sweat, but nothing really worth having comes easy, does it? So knowing that and just keep pushing. And when the voices say no, just put some loud music on and just keep going.
13: Finally, what would you give as a piece of advice to someone
14: wanting to start a small business? Start small Don't go crazy spending money on products. Think about what your ethos is, what what it is you want to create and what it is you want your customers to feel. So try not to put too much into something. Don't put yourself in a position where you're going to be losing lots of money. Have a lot of backing, you know, have a lot of knowledge before you start these things. Do your reading, make sure you know your products and when people are asking you, you have the answers for them because all of these things, all add up and you know people walk away and then they'll be like oh well I'll go back there because they they love the product they understand the product and I think that's so important the amount of times I've gone into places who are doing what I'm doing and they don't have the answers they're just making money and that's fine you know we all got to pay bills but the amount of times I've gone to garden centres this this is how it started really going to garden centres driving my poor partner around buying plants asking people like you know what, what, what is this plant shoving everything on the window giving it loads of water and everything dying have the knowledge do you know what i mean if you're going to sell a product at least ha- you know be able to just explain to people what you what it is how it works love what you do that's all i can say to people and then that all comes naturally
3: you're listening to your award-winning station radio glen morgan here for you all day every day
5: hi i'm jazz and today i'm chatting to Sarah Calloway who runs her business, House of Calloway, from her home in Bridgend. So today we're talking period products and specifically reusable period pads. I only recently discovered them, but Sarah, you and your partner, Mike, founded your business, House of Calloway, back in 2016, after you guys won a competition at the University of South Wales. Could you tell the audience what products you produce
7: and sell? So, House Calloway is a small business where I design and make cloth menstrual pads, which are basically a reusable alternative to disposable conventional sanitary pads. Currently, we have three different size cloth pads. So we have a light one, a moderate one, and a heavy one. And we have a whole host of different colours and prints of fabric, you know, something for everyone really on the website. We do also do dry-in straps as well which is something that people can attach to the pads to help them to dry them after washing them.
5: Cool so what does a drying strap look like? Where does it
7: go within the pads? So cloth pads the way that they fasten around underwear is with pop fasteners and a drying strap is basically a piece of ribbon with a pop fastener that can attach to one side of the pad and then you can then hang it up then rather than having to try and fold it over something or you know clip it to something so it's just like a hook basically.
5: So you hand make them all is that
7: right? Yep that's it so um, we cut all the fabrics to a design that I came up with back in 2016 that worked well for me and worked well for the test customers that we had at the time and yeah I basically sew them on my sewing machine and then put the snaps on by hand and the full process is by hand start to finish. Amazing I've seen like the amount of different patterns you've got
5: as well and are great. Um, (laughs) So for those who've never used a reusable pad before can you explain how you use them and then
7: how you clean them as well? So they're used very similarly to conventional disposables, except instead of having the adhesive backing on them, uh, they just have the pop fasteners to fasten around underwear. So a cloth pad is constructed with a leak-resistant backing, an absorbent core, and then a top fabric, which is comfortable against the skin. Depending on which business you buy from, you can find all different kinds of combinations of those fabrics. So, you know, we're not all the same out there. And basically to clean them, The basics of what I do for my own collection and what I show on my website as instructions is to soak them in a stain remover. Then you can do some additional stain treating if you'd like to do that with a stain soap. And then you throw them on the washing machine and hang them to dry. So it's all pretty simple. Um, Yeah.
5: I also read on your blog that the more you wash them, apparently the more absorbent they've become. Is that true?
7: They do. And the way that I explain that, is it's almost like a towel, like a bath towel. It's never as good as when it's gotten a bit older, basically. So, you know, I don't know the science behind it, but it almost, it's almost like the washing process fluffs them up a bit more and it tends to, you know, make them more absorbent over time.
5: Yeah, sure. So all the way back to 2016, what inspired you to create them and sell them, especially then at a time where reusable pads weren't as recognised as they are now
7: Well, I first saw a video on YouTube um, of somebody showing their own collection of cloth pads and I hadn't really thought too much into it. But as a student at the time, I was firstly looking to be a bit more sustainable and self-sufficient because continuing to purchase disposables is just... It just didn't feel like the right thing when I didn't have that much money. And like I was always somebody who was quite crafty in the sense of like I knew I could try and make something and it would come out half decent if I tried. Mm. And then as time went on, I also had this issue where I began to develop an allergy to disposable pads. So it just sort of made sense to start to move over to something that was cloth based as opposed to you know all the different materials that are disposables that potentially were causing that irritation for me. What was it that you
5: found you really enjoyed about making that switch? What were the benefits for you?
7: For me, the biggest thing, the immediate reaction I had was how comfortable that they were. like they no longer felt sweaty like the traditional disposable pads, and also it was the feeling of every time that I told someone else about it, it was almost empowering the fact of you know I'd created something and by no means was it new in the world because other people had been using them for a long time but it was just the fact that nobody was talking about it at the time that it felt like the best kept secret so I loved that and I also loved reducing waste as well so my bin was no longer overflowing with plastic anymore.
5: Yeah, I mean another benefit of course is the sustainable side of it. Would you like to talk about that a little bit more?
7: Yeah, there's quite a few different estimates online about how much waste a menstruating person's lifetime can generate. And all of those statistics they're just mind-blowing basically about how much waste is generated just from that one aspect of life let alone everything else. And it kind of shocked me, you know, the fact that, you know, that's something that we do every single month, throw away all these products. And a lot of people don't really think twice about it. When when you make that switch into something that's reusable, you kind of realise how little then you end up throwing away going forwards and how little then that that waste is then entering our oceans, our countryside and everything else. Yeah, you must really start to, to notice the difference, even though it's
5: just one change switching something for something new
7: definitely and it's, it's kind of addictive as well because then I found myself making other switches you know like reducing like the use of makeup wipes and things like that it was kind of addictive to start making yeah. those environmental changes
5: now um at the time of first advertising your pads for sale on social media you, you received a number of quite harmful comments let's say some of them labeling you filthy and old-fashioned of course we're here now and that didn't stop you Do you think that the stigma surrounding periods and sanitary products is still present
7: now? I do think so to an extent, but I definitely think that we're living in a completely different world compared to 2016, because definitely nowadays when I'm talking in the public domain about reusables, I don't tend to get anywhere near as much of the nasty comments as I did back then. Of course, there are one or two people who still don't want to accept it and will you know, say things that are not very nice to hear. But at the end of the day, I do think that people are slowly making that shift to realise that there are more alternatives out there. And it is something that people can consider and potentially accept for themselves maybe one day rather than almost fear in it, I suppose.
5: Yeah, and it's all absolutely okay to talk about as well. Um, Definitely.
7: So, do you
5: still see any comments like that nowadays?
7: Well, a few weeks ago I did get one, but I wouldn't say that it's um, too troublesome nowadays. It's just kind of the odd one or two people and you just brush it off and ignore it because, you know, you know that you're not doing the wrong thing here, so it's fine.
5: Yeah, it's nice to know that you're, you're very secure in what you're doing and that's not even scratching the surface. I also wanted to know whether whether it wasn't just online or if it was ever in person at any time?
7: Funny enough, not so much in person. I think a lot of people were too afraid to approach me in real life to say something, you know, a lot of people... quite easy to hide behind a computer screen and say whatever they want to say but in real life I I, you know maybe I had a few funny side looks now and again but nobody actually ever came up to me to say anything harmful in real life. I find that I sometimes hear a
5: whisper or I read something which is I don't know maybe a shaming comment surrounding periods or period products and I think that House of Calloway and the person you are behind it, this whole journey has been so important in just removing the stigma around menstruation and people who menstruate and the products that they use. So going on from that,
7: any future plans for the business? Well, I've been really enjoying recently, you know, as you say, that journey, I've been enjoying talking about you know the frequently asked questions, the sort of side topics, you know, relating to menstruation or other reusables or eco-friendly menstrual products that are on the market, and just sharing that information and just you know being that voice if I can, you know, to help others to realize what's out there, or just to talk more about topics that other people feel like they can't necessarily talk about, or maybe they don't have someone that they can discuss these kinds of topics with. So I do enjoy writing blog posts about, you know, all these things to raise awareness or just to, as you say, break the stigma and just keep moving forwards with getting these topics out there. Because at the end of the day, like there's nothing shameful about, um, you know, people's bodies or menstruation or health for that matter as a whole. If you're interested in reading any of Sarah's blogs
5: uh, or purchasing any of the reusable period pads, you can go to houseofcalloway.co.uk. And stories of a millennial for her blog. Thanks for chatting with me, Sarah. Thank you so much. Thank you.
3: Broadcasting from the John Wills Studio at the University Hospital of Wales in Cardiff, we are Radio Glamorgan.
0: heading into the final half an hour of the show. Thanks for sharing it with us. We've covered a wide range of topics and we've spoken to some inspiring and interesting women. And still to come is Lauren McDermott, a social media influencer with over 100,000 followers on Instagram. She talks to us about life in the spotlight and what it means to her to be the mum of boys. And our music selection includes Celine Dion's The Way It Is.
3: From the heart of the Heath, serving the University Hospital of Wales, St David's Hospital and the Cardiff Royal Infirmary too.
4: We are Radio Glamorgan.
0: You're listening to a Radio Glamorgan University of South Wales collaboration to mark International Women's Day.
15: Hello, my name is Ali. I'm a visual journalism student at USW. I'm Mexican, and while I love my beautiful country with all my heart, I could not thrive in wildlife documentary filmmaking there. I decided to study this program because I believe journalism is a big part of making people aware of stories that surround them. I want to help people understand the importance of conservation and empathy, and this course is helping me to land my ideas and execute them to achieve my goal. I've chosen the song Just A Girl by No Doubt because I feel it encapsulates the expectations people have of girls and women. They used to think women were weak and that we needed people to do everything for us, but we are actually strong, independent, and full of life. I love being just a girl.
4: Take this pink ribbon off my exposed and is no fear
15: For being here with us today, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is you do. Yes,
16: well, thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to be asked. Um, so, I'm Lauren. I am a very proud Welsh girl, but now I live just to the border in Herefordshire um, with my family. So, I have two little boys um, who are four and six, and then a lovely stepson as well who's uh, 13. So, he's a big boy now. I have a website and social media that is my own. And then I also do social content for Bobbi Brown Cosmetics
15: as well. And well, seeing as an outsider, the life of an influencer seems kind of perfect. And I wonder if it's exactly as it seems or if it has its challenges.
16: Just like any job. You know, you might love your job, but there's always some things that are a little bit stressful or a little bit annoying. So it's just the same. I think once um, something that was perhaps a hobby becomes a job, it changes things a little bit. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's brilliant. I would never want to do anything else actually I really really love it it's fab
15: I think that's that says a lot about like you're very lucky to have that I see a lot of people who really hate their jobs and to be someone who loves it I think it's amazing luck
16: it is it's so lucky yeah I hope it stays that way Uh, and I think yeah I mean I think if you'd ask me do I like my job at any point over the last sort of 15 years I, I would have told you that I love my job I think I'm quite a positive person but yeah it's it suits me so well I think it, it brings me a lot of fantastic opportunities and I get to be with my family a lot and yeah I'm very grateful for it although like I said it's not perfect and sometimes <laughs> sometimes things that can be annoying or difficult So yeah
15: yeah I'm sure it can be uh, speaking about that, when do you think being an influencer became like a profitable way of living for you? Yeah, so, um, well,
16: I, I feel like I was quite an early adopter of Instagram. Um, I, was, I think I've been on there now about 10 years or 11 years. So none of my friends really were on there at the time. But I love taking pictures. So it was just a creative thing for me. I was working full time in a regional role, so lots of traveling and stuff. And I don't know, it was just like a a fun thing. I never set out for it to be my job. Um, as time went on, I learned about more people who were doing it as a job. Brands that I really loved, you know, started asking if they could use my picture and things like that. And I thought, wow, like, maybe I could do this. But I was pregnant. It was not until really I was pregnant with my um, my son, Ollie, who is nearly seven. He'll be seven this summer, that I decided to start my blog um, and it's funny now, actually when I look back because I remember at the time being really nervous about what people would think of me <laughs> because um I had a job and I loved my job and it was a you know it was a busy job um, but i I just had this feeling that like maybe there was something more to this that I could create something where I could be with my children more than I would have been if I'd had to go back to work full time. So yeah, I remember being really nervous before I pressed publish, but I'm so, so glad that I did, um, because that was seven years ago, and I'm still here, so (laughs) it's good.
15: But I think that's super, super brave. I think think a lot of people may not have taken that leap of faith, but... I think it's amazing to have done so, and I think it has led you to amazing things. And like you say, spending a lot of time with your family, I think that's very valuable. So I think that giant leap of faith, with which I'm sure took a lot of guts, is worth it, has been worth it all this time. Mm
16: -hmm. Yeah. And I think I would encourage everybody to do that. I think so many people, you know, they have this thing that they think I could have," or what if, and maybe, you know, when there's huge risk involved, which I didn't feel like there was a huge risk for me in doing that. It almost was more of a fear of what people would think of me, um, which is not so much a huge risk, but I think, if there's something that you really want to do, you should just do it. Um, because it's always worth the try, isn't it? It's always better to have tried and failed than not to have tried at all. So yeah, I'm really glad that I did it.
15: Yeah, I agree completely. That's why I'm here. I'm from Mexico and I migrated like yeah. I also took a leap of faith to move here and try things out and yeah. see how it's working out for me. And what's it like to be raising two boys to be respectful to women? Because I know that your brand also has like a very very supportive like it's very supportive to women and like the whole women's aid and i think that's amazing as well
16: yeah thank you well yeah women's aid is an incredible charity and so i'll answer that part of the question first i suppose um it's something that i feel so passionately about because it's something that affects women all across the world um even just here in the UK, the numbers of women whose lives are taken by their partner is is really really shocking, um, and I think it's just something that I always feel passionate about. And it's it's you know it, there are so many things that you want to support in the world, aren't there? You know, there's always so many things that I, I feel like it's it's it, it helps me to kind of channel. Um, that particular charity, because I know that they do such incredible work and they really do save the lives of women and children. Um, And so I do kind of focus my attention on fundraising for them. Um, And we've done that in lots of different ways, like um, through... We've sort of collected boxes at Christmas time from my lovely Instagram family who kind of donated these shoeboxes full of beautiful treats and wrote handwritten letters. And we delivered them to the refugees at Christmas and then also raising money through things like collaborations with businesses like um, the English Stamp Company, for example. I have a collection with them that's that's still currently available Um, where 20% of all the sales of that collection go to Women's Aid. So, um, yeah, I feel really passionately about that particular charity and and so many others, but that's the one that I I focus on. Um, And then back to your question about raising boys to be respectful to women. I mean, that's such an important job, isn't it? It really is so important. And I think... um, I read a book when I was pregnant, actually, which was called Raising Boys. And loads of the things, I mean, it's probably, I'm not sure how up to date and modern it is now. Um, but so many of the things that I read in that book stayed with me. And one of the main things, actually, was that when little boys are Between the ages of, I think it's 0 to to 6, the role of their mum is to teach them how to love a woman, how to respect a woman, how to be gentle, and all of that kind of thing. And actually, now that my boys are coming to the end of those years, I can really see how that's been the case and how now their relationship with their dad... Um, is such a key part of their development because he takes them to their sport, they play games, it's a different experience that they have with their dad. So um, I think it really is working together as a team, leading by example, um, and just doing our best, I suppose, to show them that that love and tenderness is is a male thing too. Um, And having lots of really fantastic role models like my husband and my dad and my grandpa and yeah I mean they all of our friends yeah they they have lots of great role models so I really hope that we can do a good job of that. (laughs)
15: Yeah, I'm sure that'll be the case. I think what you're saying is like exactly right. If you surround them with Ooh. people who are respectful, yeah. not just to women, not yeah. to everyone, and like just treat everyone with respect, I'm sure children will exactly. grow up to be those types of people as well respectful, kind yeah. people. And I think that's the best yeah. any parent could want from their child. Definitely. Yeah. And I
16: think it's so, you know,
15: we. They're so lucky to grow up
16: in a happy household and to be born in this country and all of these sorts of things. And I think I, we, my husband and I, try really hard to make sure that they're aware of, of how lucky they are and of the challenges that other people face. Um, and I hope that you know doing that from a young age will help them to understand how lucky they are and the part that they can play, I suppose, in making things things better so yeah yeah it's a big one it's I mean the most important job isn't it (laughs) it's such an important job raising children
15: yeah I agree yeah
9: I am and I am an international student of visual journalism in the University of South Wales from Pakistan. Today I am going to share my favorite song with you, which is This is My Fight Song, Take Back My Life Song. Yes, this is my fight song. I love it because it fills me with motivation and it gives me courage to fight for myself without caring for anybody.
3: You're listening to your award-winning station, Radio Glamorgan.
9: Hi, my name is Asya Jamil and today I'm privileged to be with a British Syrian freelance journalist. She is not just a journalist, but a documentary filmmaker. And she's graduated with a journalism prize from the University of South Wales. So welcome Runahi Hassan with us on the show. As you're working as a female journalist, we would like to know about your life as well as about your professional journey.
17: My professional uh, as a journalist started here when I came to the UK. But uh, if I want to talk about my life in Syria, I am a mother of three children. And uh, the thing is in Syria, uh, as a Syrian and in particular as a Kurd, uh, we were already, you know, uh, suffering from the government who denied the right for the Kurdish people. Uh, I, I left Syria and it was a very, very big decision, you know, for me to take it and uh, risking my life and my children as well, because the time when I left Syria, my children were small. And I left it without my husband even. So I came to the UK without knowing where I am. So I didn't know anything, even the language. I didn't have family, no friends. I I didn't have even any um, knowledge about the culture, the life, how the system is going here. And try my best to maybe show the country that welcomed me and opened their arms for me as a refugee, that I'll, I'll, I, I am on you something and I, I want to be a part of this country, you know? So I worked very hard to learn the language first, which is the key for everything. When I, I study journalism, for three years full-time. I graduated, uh, as you said, with Journalism Prize. And even during the uni when I was studying, I was working as a freelance, you, you can tell. Like, like I was um, already doing a, a job like uh, as a journalist.
9: Yes, and it's so inspiring journey of struggle from a woman who came as a refugee and who had her, uh, you know, um, prize in journalism and who has done so much to bring to the light, to bring to the surface, the stories, the untold, the unheard stories from the people who were under siege. So that is really inspiring. Do you think um, it is important to have female journalists around the world uh, to bring the issues of women specifically during the situation like the one in Syria? And then we we can see that same situation is going on in the other countries
17: as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And especially if uh, we have like uh, women in the journalism field, is quite important and especially at this era. So when I got married, it was like promise between me and my husband because first of all, I had lots of problem, you know, the, his family, they, they didn't want me to carry on my uh, university's education. So I told my husband, let's just, uh, just allow me to study secretly which I was doing it for years. And imagine, you know, raising three children and my children were doing very, very well at school even. And I was studying in secret and I didn't let anyone, like, you know, from my society, from my relatives or family, they know they are, are, I I am studying. I I think like, as a woman, uh, particularly if you live in society, as I said first, like, uh, occurred you you already have this you know discrimination by the government and secondly from the society and even the time like for uh, first uh, degree uh, I uh, was dismissed from the university so then I went to study like in a private university uh, again secretly I think bringing up this untold story is so important those people lives in dangers and you as a journalist it's your duty responsibility to do something for them and i'm so glad now like most like of those people they i conducted interview with them were mostly like women they have their refugee stated now if you want to want to do something good believe me you, you can do it. Absolutely, and that is your belief in yourself that from studying
9: secretly, you have become a journalist and such an inspiring journalist that we have shared the stories which needed to be known to the world. And of course, living and coming from the area where girls were restricted from the basic right of education, it's sometimes hurt for people here in the UK to believe that certain, you know certain things exist, but it mm-hmm. does. And um, absolutely, I would like as you um, to share, uh, like for example, we can see these days what is happening in Ukraine. And of course, everybody is upset with these things. So what do you think, what would be the impact of that on the women there and the children there particularly? What challenges would they be facing?
17: My heart eating, you know, when I see those images of Ukrainian people, and we, 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 without any right, why this has happened to them? Why Russia, you know, invade Ukraine for no reason? I'm really, uh, I don't even know how to describe, you know, my feeling. And I really feel like very sad about what's going on in Ukraine. And these images, it just, reflects what happened in Syria.
9: I wish the whole world understands how war affects people and how difficult it would be for people to get back to normal. Perhaps they cannot. What do you think about it? Do you think it's possible to get back to normal after seeing all such, uh, you know, bloodshed and the miseries and stuff like
17: that? Of course. As I said, you know, during my... uh, talking to you, I said, like, there is nothing that says, like, impossible. There is always things that says possible. We can. If you want, yes, we can make this a planet the best place to live. This requires, you know, lots of works to do, you know, and just it happened. People, they should react to it. They should not just be silenced.
9: Absolutely, I do agree with you. So I would have uh, one question for, from you, for those people, those females who aspire to be journalists. So do you think what opportunities do, do they have and what challenges they might face as a female journalist?
17: It depends, like, uh, the society, where are you, like, uh, in the Middle East, I believe it's very, very, like, challenging. Uh, even here in the Europe, is, again, it's not that easy thing. Apart, like, it's a very competitive field, and uh, also we still we have these uh, things about, like, discrimination, you know. Still is going on, and uh, mostly, like, they dominated this field. And um, and especially if you, you are, like, from a d- different background, that, again, another dilemma is going to be, I can tell you there is lots of other things still under threat, you know what I mean? But we have to just keep going, you know? Believe me, uh, there is nothing is gonna be easy. It will take time, but it's paid off. You have to work hard and never give up. And there is always hope that one day we, we will be equal and, you know, and especially I, I mean, like in the field of uh, work, like uh, as a journalist. So you will have the same right as Uh, men. Um, um,
9: I absolutely can very much relate to you and I salute your courage that you took uh, you know uh, the um, stance or actually the opportunity to speak about the very sensitive topics which is very hard for you know for females and now I would like you to give your last message on International Women's Day to all women out
17: there who would love to be inspired from your work my last message i'd like to tell all women in the world and particularly in this special day follow your soul don't be afraid yeah your greatest fear is not that you will fail but your greatest fear is that you will live full life and never fly so what i did is just i gave my dream a chance and i am just an ordinary woman who chose to make one more extraordinary decision every day so i wish all the best and happiness for all the women in the world thank you
9: thank you very much for your time and thank you for your Words that would stay with me forever. And that's it. Thank you for your company on International
0: Women's Day. I hope you enjoyed hearing from some quite exceptional women.
3: From the heart of the Heath, serving the University Hospital of Wales, St David's Hospital, and the Cardiff Royal Infirmary, too.
4: We are Radio Glamorgan.